you please stand for the reading of God's word? In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while, stay, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard, me, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he, said that, and, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, Behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do, you, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went, to, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with, all these with one accord were, devoted, were devoting themselves to pray, prayer together with the, woman, with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. The word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. God. Again, good morning to you. As we are about to begin a new year, we're starting a new sermon series on the book of Acts here at Rockwall Press. Now, most of you, and I'm speaking simply statistically, I have not asked you or pursued this with you in person, but most of you have made or thought about what you're going to do in terms of a New Year's resolution. You've pondered something you want to change. Now, statistically, probably not statistically in this room, but statistically nationally, the top three resolutions that people will make are to something related to diet and fitness, to stop smoking, or to drink less. Now, it's somewhat fascinating because if you look up New Year's resolutions about, from about 100 years ago, they're all about pursuing some form of virtue. Uh, I want to be uh, more generous. I want to contribute more to my community. I want to, uh, I want to pursue holiness. I want to be a better friend. And now, 100 years later, we're busy trying to stop doing things that are bad for us or doing things in excess. It's an interesting commentary on where we've gone in terms of morality and ethics in the last 100 years. But as you weigh, perhaps, your New Year's resolution, what I'd like to challenge you with this morning is to reconsider what your resolution will be. In light, actually, of the book of Acts. Think about what you'll commit to 
in light of what Luke presents to us here in the opening chapter of his account of what happens after the ascension of Jesus. Now, as we start any sermon series, a good question to ask is, why Acts? Well, at Rockwell Press, we do a basic rotation between an Old Testament book and New Testament book, and then considering something systematically throughout the, all of Scripture. And we do that to try to appreciate the whole counsel of God's Word. So we find ourselves in a New Testament section, but we can still ask, why Acts? Well, we just finished considering the Old Testament book of Amos. And Amos is what you might consider a negative example. In other words, it chronicles a period of Israel's life in which Israel wasn't being particularly faithful. And so the question you tend to ask when reading it is, how do I prevent myself, or how, does, how do we as a group prevent ourselves from making the same errors that Israel did during that time period? When we come to Acts, it's quite different. Acts is an account of the Spirit-empowered people of God. It's the birth of the church in a post-resurrection sense. And it's a book, as we read, it informs us how they told the story of Jesus after Jesus left them physically. And we can ask ourselves, are we telling that story faithfully? Are we participating in that same narrative? And really we're asking, how do we replicate or repeat what we see in the book of Acts rather than looking at mistakes to avoid? It's a positive example for us. And it's a great time in the year, right, to consider a positive example and say, okay, as we enter 2018, what does it mean for us to continue to be the spirit-empowered witness bearers of the risen Christ? What does that look like? What's involved? And what should we make sure we understand from Luke in order to be equipped in that? Luke is uh, writing the bulk of the New Testament. Uh, Paul will write more volumes in terms of the number of volumes, but for sheer quantity, Luke is the largest single contributor to the New Testament. He writes his gospel and he writes Acts, and they're intended to go together. Really, it's, be- it's actually a very sad state of affairs that we separated them in when we uh, wrote out the canon, right? The people who were establishing the, the table of contents, so to speak, for the New Testament decided that it was more important to group the gospels together Right, than to uh, keep Luke and Acts together. A mistake, in my opinion. But no one was asking me, and I don't think anyone really cares about my opinion now, but I say this to you to try to drive home the importance to you that Luke and Acts were conceived of and should really be considered one volume. It is uh, almost literally held together with the spine of the resurrection uh, of an ascension of Jesus and Pentecost. Right? These are the two... Uh, major events in redemptive history that bind Luke's gospel on one side and Acts on the other uh, together. And the reason that Luke is writing is he's writing to a person, probably some Roman elite named Theophilus, and trying to encourage him in his faith. It seems that Theophilus has become a believer. And Luke writes uh, back in 1.4, he says to Theophilus in his gospel, that he's writing that, he, that Theophilus may have certainty over the things that are being expressed, these events that have taken place. Luke is a historian. He wasn't part, really, of Jesus' band of disciples as Jesus was conducting his ministry, but has done a great deal of legwork to be able to write all this down, not only for Theophilus, but for uh, the historical record. And so as he opens Acts, he's doing a couple of things. Luke is reminding Theophilus of why he's written, He's reminding him of the major uh, pillars 
of what's happening in, in the new Christian story. And then he, he portrays the disciples as taking a certain posture. So as we're thinking about our resolutions, ultimately, I want us to see uh, three certainties. Right? Remember, Luke is telling Theophilus, this is why you can be certain in your faith. And he draws out three certainties that are essential to understanding the story of Acts. And then as a result of those three certainties, he says you should have a certain posture. Right? A certain posture should characterize the disciples if they understand these certainties. So we're going to take the three certainties and then consider the posture at the end. The first certainty, then, is, the, is a certain faith. If you look with me at verse 3, Luke writes, He, speaking of Jesus, presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Luke is, is pointing out the fact that Jesus, after his resurrection, appeared to hundreds of individuals during a 40-day period in which he taught them to understand the scriptures and to appreciate the kingdom of God. It's essential in Luke's mind that Theophilus grasps that Jesus is risen from the dead. Now that might seem silly to you. That might seem like a non-negotiable to you. I hope it does. But the church in the 20th century, particularly in America, has distanced itself dramatically from the historicity of the resurrection. In other words, many churches and many theologians in the 20th century said, we just don't believe in the miraculous, that someone was raised from the dead is too much for us to grasp or too much for that you would ask us to believe this. And so we like Jesus, we like his teaching, we're going to keep that, but the resurrection we're throwing by the wayside. This was a devastating decision. Right? As Paul has said, without the resurrection, there is no gospel. If there's no resurrection, then death has not been defeated. And if death has not been defeated, then sin still reigns. And if sin still reigns, then you are without hope. And so as Luke begins and reminds Theophilus that Jesus has made many appearances, this is a crucial claim for, uh, for the young church and a crucial claim that we remember that our faith is grounded in a historical reality. It is anchored to events in time and space. Now this is, if Luke is not telling the truth, he's making a ridiculous claim that would have been incredibly foolish to put in the context of his writing. If you imagine if, say it's 1975 and somebody says, uh, Elvis is alive and has been seen by 25 different people. Well, people would say, okay, maybe. Let's talk to the 25 different people. Let's see what the nature of these accounts are and if they can be verified and if we can actually then establish that there's a reason to believe that Elvis is still alive. Now, more likely, those accounts would be ludicrous and not reliable, and so you would conclude that Elvis is indeed not alive. Luke is writing that Jesus has made many appearances and demonstrated his resurrection through proofs to the generation that can verify these claims. People can rise up and say, no, he was never seen. You're lying. Right? These are things that could have been and were wrestled with, but they only make sense to claim if they're actually true because they would be disproven in such an easy fashion. And it is this certainty of faith in the resurrection that not only encourages our faith in terms of its historicity, its historical reality, 
But Peter says it's supposed to encourage us uh, for, uh, to suffer trials. Right? We think, okay, the resurrection is true, great. I can take confidence that there's resurrection for me. But Peter says, no, it's much more than that, that God has born a hope in you. He says that 1 Peter 1.3 says, a hope has been established within you as a result of what? As a result of the resurrection. That it's understanding that, oh, if I look at the life of Jesus and understand that the outcome for all those who are united to him is resurrection, then whatever I'm going through, whatever I'm suffering, ends in resurrection, then, as Tolkien would say, everything sad comes untrue. It's actually one of the great motivators for serving the world. C.S. Lewis put it like this, If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. It is our hope, our belief in the resurrection that equips us to labor for that future and even to labor to bring more and more of that future into the present to be motivated by that reality of the resurrection, that certainty. This is the first thing that Luke points out to the apostles. And the next thing that he points out, the next certainty, the first one is a certain faith, the next is a certain gift. The people of God will not be left alone. And really, this is a very sweet grace of God in the sense that we could be left simply with this abstract confidence in the resurrection as a historical reality. But God doesn't leave us in that place. He says, not only am I going to leave you with that assurance, but I'm actually going to leave you with the assurance of my very presence. In other words, I'm not going to leave you alone. I'm going to dispense a person of the Godhead to be with you and to dwell in you and among you and to lead you and to counsel you. And this, of course, is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, Luke is particularly notable because he emphasizes the Holy Spirit more than any other New Testament writer, at least in terms of the Gospels. Every time Jesus approaches some milestone in his ministry, Luke will go out of his way to explain how Jesus himself is equipped in the power of the Spirit to do that. And if Jesus needed to be equipped in the power of the Spirit to conduct his ministry, we should be quite sure that we better be equipped by the Spirit if we're going to participate in any similar ministry. Notice how much emphasis is placed on the Spirit here. In verse 2, uh, interestingly, Luke says, Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. So Luke says uh, Jesus was actually commanding the apostles through the Holy Spirit. In verse 5, it says, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Of course, uh, that is referring to Pentecost in the near future. And then also in verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So the very missional task that the apostles are being called to, they will be equipped to it as a result of receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, if we're saying the Holy Spirit is the very, the very person that equips us in mission, that equips us in participating in the story of Acts, it has to be a priority that we think about the Spirit. It has to be a priority that we cultivate that relationship with the Spirit. Right? The Spirit is a person. And you know how to cultivate a relationship. Right? If your relationship with a friend or with a spouse or with a relative has gone south, and you decide that you want to cultivate that relationship, what do you do? You approach that person. You prioritize that relationship. You spend time. 
You hear from the other person. You engage it. Are you engaging and investing in your relationship to the Godhead through the Holy Spirit? Are you delving into God's Word? Are you praying and being quiet and trying to listen? You hear from the Spirit. Be led by Him. Counseled by Him. If not then you won't be empowered for what you've been called to. And if you then try to do what you've been called to without being empowered by the Holy Spirit, you're signing up for a very good deal of frustration. You can't accomplish your own holiness. It is the Spirit that accomplishes your holiness. And so, you know, one thing to keep in mind is moving forward into this year, friends, I'm I'm utterly persuaded that we live in the most, um, the noisiest period in, in history. There's more, there's more noise breaking in on you from all kinds of, you know, whether it's media or digital devices or the busyness of our schedules. And if you do not make it a priority to slow down and to be quiet, then you will never hear the Holy Spirit. If the word and prayer are getting pushed out of your life as a result of that cacophony, right, then you need to do something. You need to create places of quiet by you know, dare to do something bold. 30 days without Netflix. 45 days, right, without a phone. Right? Not the phone phone, but everything else on the phone. You know? So maybe it's smaller than that. I don't know what's realistic for your life, but you can think and actually make a decision on how to, to increase and create more quiet. And it is the spirit that we desperately need to participate in what? The very mission, the very storytelling that we've been called to. This is the whole point, and perhaps the best single summary of the book of Acts is 1.8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and on all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. So, if you are being quiet or pursuing the Spirit, once that Spirit has come upon you, right, what what's then is the next thing? Well, to participate in that very mission, being a witness bearer in whatever context you find yourself. Are you being a witness bearer of the risen Christ? I was reading about Wesley So. He is uh, the current reigning American chess champion. He's number two in the world, and he's also a Christian, uh, quite a vocal Christian. In fact, he, he fled a, a life that was going nowhere in the Philippines, ended up with a foster family in America that funded him to pursue chess, and was Christian. And they were witness bearers to him. And he converted to Christianity and now speaks quite boldly for his faith, even though many people are telling him, listen, you need to, you need to take it down a notch. Um, and it's not because he's over the top. Don't, don't hear me this way. What they're saying is, you're going to mess up your marketing deals. Businesses aren't, aren't going to want to fund you because you're just not, you're not the person that they want out in front. You're not going to get invited to as many tournaments if people think you're going to show up to another country and proselytize in the midst of that tournament. Still, Wesley speaks boldly uh, for Christ. He he reflected on being a Christian in the chess world, which is is incredibly unpopular. The chess chess world thinks that they're very, very intelligent people, and I guess they probably are. Uh, But in the midst of that intelligence, they look down on faith as a very unintelligent decision to be made. And so Wesley reflects, people in the chess world sometimes want to know whether I think God makes me win matches. Yes, and sometimes he makes me lose them too. He is the God of chess and, more importantly, the God of everything. 
Win or lose, I give him the glory. Of course, it's hard when I don't get what I want, the way it is for any child whose father says no. But even when I don't understand God's ways, I'm confident that his vision is much bigger than my own. Wesley So is someone who knows the empowerment of the Holy Spirit because it's equipped him in his mission. As you pursue the empowerment of the Holy Spirit, is it really... uh, is it really encouraging you and equipping you unto mission? To not participate in, the mission, in mission is to give up the very calling right, that's been placed upon the Christian's life. So Luke is reminding Theophilus and us, number one, there's a certainty uh, to your faith in the historicity of the resurrection. Number two, there's a certainty uh, to the gift that God gives, which is the Holy Spirit which you must continue to cultivate and also equips you for a very particular purpose. But thirdly, he says there's a, certain, there's a certainty in the kingdom, but notice how the kingdom is so grossly misunderstood, even by the disciples, the apostles who have walked with Jesus. If you look uh, at verse 6, So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? Now, I love questions like this. They, make, they encourage uh, the weakness of the expressions of my faith. These are the people who have spent the most time with Jesus. How much time has Jesus spent talking about overthrowing the Romans? How much time has Jesus spent talking about reestablishing Israel as a geopolitical power over Palestine? It hasn't really been on the radar screen. Right? And yet, what do the apostles want? Okay, now are we finally there? Because this whole time, we've really wanted you to reestablish Israel as a geopolitical power and to overthrow the Romans. We know you haven't liked to talk about it that much, but it seems like things are winding down here to some degree. So is, this, is it time? And Jesus, in grace and wisdom, says, it's not for you to know the time or the hour that the Father establishes, but this is what's going to happen. You're going to receive a part of the Godhead And that's going to equip you to bear the message of the kingdom. And that's actually how this kingdom is going to move forward. This kingdom isn't going to be uh, one that you want it to be. It's not going to be like the one you desire. It's not going to be one that puts Israel on top. It's one that's going to go out and be an extension of my grace to all the communities of the world. It will begin with you as you go from Jerusalem and move forward. The kingdom is a certainty. Christ's kingdom, it's something that he's promised and he's describing how it's going to move forward, but it's not moving forward. It's really not the kingdom that the apostles want. And we know that. I mean, we experience that. We long for certain manifestations of kingdom, but often when we describe the kingdom we want, it has a lot in tension with the kingdom that Jesus brings. Marcus Doe is a good example of this. He um, grew up a Christian. Grew up in Liberia, a very Christian nation. Would say that he worships Jesus and follows him. But in 1990, Liberia went through a, a dramatic uh, overthrow of the existing government. And Marcus's dad worked for that government. It was a very bloody revolution. And uh, Marcus was 11 in 1990. He had to be sent to live with his brother and his wife. And they would eventually flee to Ghana to seek safety. As they were doing that, 
his dad turned himself in. There was a deal where if you turned yourself in and told the secrets of the previous administration, you just came clean, then you would be, you would be forgiven and let go. Uh, but the people who did that were never heard from again. They were assassinated once they turned themselves in. So Marcus ends up with his brother applying for refugee status in the United States, ultimately ends up in Boston, and that's where he'll uh, go to high school. And looking back, he will describe that period in his life as being uh, utterly consumed with the desire for vengeance. All he wanted to do was go back and find the person who had killed his father and hold them responsible. So he graduates from high school, joins the U.S. Army just so he can learn how to use uh, weapons. He's discharged because he has a heart condition and kind of lost. And in the midst of this, begins to really seek out Christ. But the point of the story is that for all, you know, his teens and his 20s, Marcus is utterly committed to a vision of God's kingdom will be my justice. God's kingdom will look like me executing the person who executed my father. It was a kingdom of revenge. And as Marcus grew, he had to come to terms with the kingdom that I desire, even though I say I'm a Jesus follower, the kingdom I desire is in utter tension with the kingdom that Jesus proclaims. And so I either have to admit that I prefer my kingdom and don't want Jesus, or I have to adopt and pursue Jesus' kingdom and give up my kingdom. And that's ultimately what he does. He labors. It is so hard. He labors for years says, I know I have to get to a point where I forgive this man. And so he would sit in his room in front of an empty chair pretending the man was there and say, uh, I forgive you. He said initially he couldn't even get the words out. And he had to practice for years before he eventually got to that point. Now, by the time he gets back to Liberia, the person who killed his dad is actually, had died in the fighting. is no longer alive. But Marcus gets to the place where he can't forgive him. Where he's living, pursuing Christ's kingdom rather than his own kingdom. He makes a transition where the, the apostles have to make the same transition. Oh, you're not going to throw out Rome and reestablish Israel, and we're going to have to be going and, and telling your story to the whole world and suffering for that process. It's a transition. But it's a call to us to ask, where, where really do our kingdoms lie? What kingdom do you really dream about being established? Is it the kingdom of Christ? which turns all of the priorities of the world upside down? Or is it really a kingdom that looks a lot like your neighbor's kingdom and you sprinkle a little Jesus fairy dust on it now and then to make it seem Christian? What really is the nature of the kingdom that you pursue? Now, if you understand these three certainties, right? A certain faith, the resurrection, a certain gift, the Holy Spirit, and uh, a certain kingdom, which is the coming of Christ's kingdom rather than our own, then the result will be a certain posture, a posture uh, that involves two things, interestingly. And one of the things that most stands out, even as we think about the book of Amos and how Israel was failing to wait appropriately for God's redemption in the Old Testament, we come to this passage in Acts, and Jesus says, listen, wait. That's kind of a little anticlimactic. Jesus has risen from the dead, He's promising this great gift of the Spirit. And so he says, I want you to just hang out in Jerusalem. I would imagine that might be kind of hard, hard to do, to just sit and wait. But we see the apostles being obedient, being faithful. Okay, Jesus, you're in charge, and if this is what you command us to do, we'll do it. Now, not only do they wait, but they wait uh, in a certain fashion. If you look at verse 14, 
All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together uh, and so on and so forth. The point is that they are all with one accord devoting themselves to prayer. Now that notion there, one accord, in English it's a little bit clunky because it could give you the impression, oh, they're all praying about, they're unified about the same subject material. And that's not what Luke is saying. Luke is saying uh, they share uh, the same fervent passion. They're unified in their zeal and prayer, not necessarily just in the, in the sense of their subject material. In other words, the apostles are so filled with faith, they have these, these certainties, a certainty of faith, a certainty of the gift of the Spirit, a certainty of the kingdom, that they say, what, what's the most important thing we could do? Well, we could pray. Because we believe deeply that God is powerful and that He is good. And if we believe those things, then it makes sense to petition Him to act. In this sense, you should see prayer as the most logical expression of faith there is. If I am really certain that Jesus was raised from the dead, if I am really certain that sin and death have been defeated, if I am certain that God shares Himself with us, His people through the gift of the Holy Spirit, if I am certain that the kingdom is continuing to unfold, right, then God is doing things that no human being could possibly do. It means that God is way more powerful and way more in control than I give him credit for, which means that I really am not nearly as significant or affect as much change as I think I do, which means that one of the most important things I can do is pray. And this is why prayer is such an important thing. Uh, thermometer of faith. You know, sometimes people will come to me and say, ah, I'm not praying. I'm too busy. I'm too distracted. I can't concentrate. And okay, yes, yeah, to some degree. But I think at the end of the day, if you're not praying, it's because you don't have faith. You don't have these certainties. Right? We've just said that, that prayer is the most logical thing in the world if we actually have faith. And when we're not praying, I think what it should reveal to us is actually we don't believe. Yeah, resurrection, man, so long ago, am I sure? Holy Spirit, I don't know. I don't hear him. Is he here? Is he, is he talking? And the kingdom, man, I am definitely more interested in different kinds of kingdoms than Jesus' kingdom. The kingdom of my work and the kingdom of my kids and the kingdom of my marriage and the kingdom of my house and the kingdom of uh, my yard. Uh, so on and so forth. And it's in that we realize, oh, well, I don't have very much time for prayer because I don't think prayer really affects anything. And that should reveal to all of our hearts that we really just aren't believing. You know, if I said to you, and this is hard, it's something I have to wrestle with. Right? If, the, if the degree to which you pray is the degree to which you believe, how much faith do you have? And that's what I'd like you to wrestle with as you think about all the New Year's resolutions you may make going into this year. Right? What if you just may try to make a priority in some fashion, praying? My challenge is to, you, to you is to let your faith grow and expand by being a little bit more disciplined in prayer than you are now. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that you take up, and this is, this is the biggest mistake of all New Year's resolutions, is to make some wild, huge commitment. Right? Uh, oh, I'm going to pray the liturgies five times a day. Right? No, you're not, and I'm not. But whatever you're doing now, you know, maybe if you add five minutes to it, 
Or maybe if it's every day rather than once or twice a week. Right? And in that, you confess to your heart and to your mind and to the world that you believe that there is a certain faith, that there is a certain gift, that there is a certain kingdom. And your heart and your mind will grow in the midst of them as you wait faithfully in prayer. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for the kingdom that you have wrought in this world, the gift that you give us, the gift of your spirit. We ask that you would help us to be a people of a deeper faith, a people uh, who know that they are of deeper faith because we are spending more time in prayer. Prayer is hard. It's a great challenge. And we ask, Holy Spirit, that you would come and encourage us in it. And I ask for all that are gathered here today that you would help us to move forward in our commitment to pray. As we see the apostles being sure of their faith and being united in prayer, a fervency of prayer, would you unite us in a fervency of prayer that we might know more of you and might know more of the certainties of our faith. We ask for your grace in this in Christ's name. Amen.